From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Nandi. Tom Sherwood is our resident analyst and contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome. Hello, everybody. Well, Tom, this is it, the last politics hour of the year. A lot has happened this year. Don't just take my word for it. Just let's listen back to some of the highlights. Here goes. Welcome to the Politics Hour, starring Tom Sherwood. The real reason the impeachment trial doesn't start until 1 o'clock in the afternoon when he's done. I don't think voters are going to be forgiving that A quickly. lot of the oh, oh, wait, did you hear that? Voters will not be forgiving that quickly of Jack Evans. What's dominating a lot of conversations today is the coronavirus, which is not, not, according to a CDC official, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. This sounds like grammar school, but when you say wash your hands, what does that really mean? You cannot mess up an individual's ability to cast their vote. This is also happening during a pandemic. This week, Metro announced huge service cuts if the system doesn't get the funding it needs to basically make up for the budget shortfall. This is a one incident with George Floyd that resulted in death. Corner of 16th and 8th Street Northwest, right by St. John's Church and immediately north of Lafayette Square, has been symbolically renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza by Mayor Bowser. Literally, racism is killing black and brown people in, in a lot of ways. And it's certainly the most pernicious and abhorrent form of this racism is in uh, police violence. There is still a clear demand to look at MPD's budget, to reduce that budget where there are programs that are ineffective. The number one thing that contributes to excessive force in any police agency is when you underfund it. Today is a historic day on Capitol Hill as the U.S. House of Representatives is voting on H.R. 51, the D.C. statehood bill. Kojo, we know that D.C. is ready. This is what's fair and this is what rights and historic uh, wrong. Many folks I've talked to had family that were, were here in Washington for the March on Washington 57 years ago. I said to somebody, I've been fighting the Confederacy three times longer than the Confederacy existed. I am very hopeful about the vaccination. The, the numbers look very good. And so we have been planning for a couple months uh, in how to distribute that equitably uh, across the Commonwealth. We'll also be talking with uh, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland. No, not Governor Hogan. He never appears on this broadcast. Kojo, this is my fifth punch on the uh, Kojo loyalty card. I think five more and I get a pastry, right? Virginia Senator Mark Warner released a now viral video this week of him making a tuna melt. Frankly, that tuna melt was of questionable quality. It's not an election season without an appearance on the Koto Namdi show. you got to understand on this broadcast, we're not used to people who think before they respond. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and everyone stay safe and thank you for listening. I'm Kojo Namdi. Can you identify all the Politics Hour guests and analysts you just heard? Of course, Tom Sherwood and yours truly, but some of those other voices... 
D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson, Virginia Delegate Ibrahim Samira, D.C. Council Member Kenyon McDuffie, outgoing D.C. Police Chief Peter Newsham, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, Phyllis Randall, Chair of the Loudoun County Board of Supervisors, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, Virginia Delegate Danica Rome, D.C.'s Senior Editor Rachel Curzius, WAMU Editor and Reporter Martin Ostermule, WMU Arts and Culture Reporter and What's With Washington host Michaela Lafrak, and Washington Post Reporter Finnett Nerapil. And our two guests today even made the cut. D.C. Councilmember Charles Allen and Montgomery Councilmember Will Jawando. As you heard, one notable voice was absent, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. In the show's history, the only governor in our region who has never appeared on the Politics Hour is Governor Hogan. So, Governor, there's still time to come on the show. You know the number. Just give us a call. As I said, later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with Will Jawando. He's an at-large member of the Montgomery County Council. But right now, we're talking with Charles Allen, who's a member of the D.C. Council representing Ward 6. Council Member Allen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I was completely unaware there was a loyalty program and a pastry card. So uh, <laughs> I think I got a couple of punches this year. You don't qualify for them yet. <laughs> um, but Tom Sherwood, you have news. Uh, yes, there is news. I've confirmed the breaking city paper story that Mayor Bowser will order all D.C. restaurants to close indoor dining as of 10 p.m. 10 p.m. next Wednesday, December 23rd. All indoor dining will be banned because of the coronavirus. The virus cases here have been steadily increasing, not as bad as around other parts of the country, but still it's a serious problem. The mayor is expected to announce the change in the restaurant hours uh, later today, uh, and we'll be anxious to hear what she has to say. She's expected to say that the indoor ban should be in effect just a few weeks to get through the holiday season, at least. And meanwhile, I should point out that the Maryland Restaurant Association, the Maryland Restaurant Association, is going into court to try to overturn the ban on indoor dining in both uh, Montgomery and Prince George's County. So the virus continues to disrupt the, econ the economy and the lives of, of millions of people in the Washington area. Yeah, we'll be talking about the Montgomery ban because the Montgomery County Council voted for that ban on indoor dining when we talk with Will Jawando later on. But right now, I'm sure a lot of restaurant owners in D.C. are likely to be pretty upset about this. But is it something that you are in favor of, Charles Allen? You know, I think this is a decision that nobody wants to make, but it is a decision that, that does need to be made uh, because we're trying to focus on, on everyone's health. I think we have to acknowledge, though, while this is the right public health decision to make, we've got to make sure that we're backing it up, though, with the types of supports for those small businesses, uh, for the employees who are going to be losing their jobs, uh, and making sure that we've got those supports to have them uh, rebound back. Because this is a, it's a tough decision, but, but you know, the, a public health emergency like this uh, requires tough decisions to be made. So I, I'm supportive of this. But I know we got to be able to back this up with the type of support that our local businesses need. And for all of us uh, out there, for me, you know, if you're able to, uh, like I will be able to, it means I need to make sure I'm going out and doing takeout at least once or twice more a week uh, to make sure we're supporting these businesses. Yeah, I want to say that about carryout, too, because it, it's important you can carry out from restaurants and help them. And tents are an issue. Many of the restaurants are doing outdoor dining, and they've created tents. But if the tents, and I'm not sure the exact rules, but if the tent has a roof and it has more than one side, it's considered indoors. And then with the cold weather, tents are not that good of an idea anyway. It's, a, again, a huge disruption to a, a major business in our city. We have to yeah. see what... Go ahead, please, oh, Councilmember Allen. 
it, it's certainly going to have an impact on our businesses, but um, you know, let's also remember the the, the employees that are going to be be hit by a decision like this. So it's not something that's that's ever made lightly. Uh, yes. And I think that the the data and the science is what's pointing us to this direction. Uh, but there are things that we as residents can do right now to help support our local businesses, um, order out, yeah, do carry out and take out to help keep keep some business going to them. And then let's make sure we're ready to welcome them back when it's safe uh, and when we're all able to do so healthy. Speaking of conversations, Council Member Allen, have you had a conversation with your Ward 3 <laughs> colleague, Mary Che? I haven't, although um, I am glad that, that she's doing okay. Um, we certainly well, don't we, I, I do have to interrupt because for those of our listeners who may not understand why you say that you're glad she's doing okay, Tom Sherwood, can you give us a brief, a brief synopsis of what happened with the Ward 3 council member yesterday? Yes, the, uh, I would just say very quickly that the D.C. police uh, are having public awareness campaign all the time that says, if you leave your car on, it could be gone. Uh, yesterday, Mayor Che, uh, Mayor Che, Mary Che, uh, was picking up. She went inside. She, she was on Connecticut Avenue near Abemarle, going inside a, a bakery to pick up something she had left the day before. She parked in the street on Connecticut Avenue. She left her car running. She left her car running because she was just going to be inside for a minute. And while she was inside, Someone jumped into her car and drove off. It is clearly uh, a it is clearly a regrettable incident, Council Member Allen. But most people who live in big cities and people who have been living in Washington for a while will say, "Well, we know better than that in Washington D.C." But it all happened quite ki- quickly. Care to comment? Well, it does happen quickly, and you know, I, I am very glad that that Councilor Che is, is okay. But um, you know, I, I don't think we want to make light of it. Uh, this is it, it's a serious uh, crime, and, and, you know, we want to treat that seriously. We're, we are seeing, unfortunately, uh, and other cities are seeing the exact same, uh, the, the thefts of these autos like this, um, especially when there's more and more deliveries that are taking place, be it food or, or other items during the holiday season, and uh, vehicles are, are left running or the keys accessible. Uh, so we really want to, from a public information standpoint, just remind folks, of course, not to do that. Uh, I think Councilman Berchet is, is making that point as well uh, on her own behalf. Um, you know, but we also need to think about the fact that, you know, that's serious. Um, we've also, of course, have seen other crime that that is also unacceptable. I think we had three young people were shot this past week, um, in terms of gun violence. And so we, we need to treat all of this seriously and really work hard, uh, to end, uh, violence and and crime in our city. Let me, let me, can I just point out really quickly, initially this was reported as it would have been a, it had been a carjacking at the uh, car wash next door to the, to the bakery. It was not a carjacking, but I want to emphasize what the council member just said, motor vehicle this year, uh, thefts from, uh, thefts of motor vehicles, any way they're stolen is up 49%. So don't leave your car running unattended. Councilmember Allen, the D.C. Council wrapped up its 23rd legislative session this week. One bill that passed, the Second Look Amendment Act, was one of your priorities. The act will allow anyone who committed a violent crime before they turned 25 to petition a judge for early relief, provided they have served 15 years of their sentence. This from Colleen Grablix reporting for DCS. Under current law, only those who committed their crimes before they turned 18 are able to request a change in their prison sentence. Councilmember Allen, why was this one of your priorities? 
Well, the purpose of the Second Look Act, it's, it's really geared at evaluating uh, whether someone who has been in prison for, again, at least 15 years uh, since they were a young adult, if they can safely come home. Uh, we ask a judge to make an independent review, to listen to the voices of victims and survivors, to listen to the community, look at that individual's behavior and many more factors, um, and decide, is that person uh, a threat to public safety or not? And what we've seen uh, is that the the results of individuals that have been able to to have the judges make that decision and determination have come home, have come home successfully, are no threat to public safety. And in fact, many are actively contributing to stop cycles of violence. Uh, they are youth mentors. They are violence interrupters. Uh, they are fathers and grandfathers and, and returning back to be a, a stabilizing force in their community. So we, we as a city are better off uh, by making sure that, that the individuals that have been able to come home have done so, do so safely, and are contributing uh, as full members of our society. Okay. Got to take a short break, but we did get a Twitter message from, from Victim Recovery DC saying, some of our recommendations regarding ways to include victims' voices were not included in this legislation. However, we still strongly support the district's efforts towards criminal legal reform and new definitions of justice that account for the spectrum of crime survivors' experiences. Got to take a short break. I'm Kojo Namdi. Welcome back. Our guest is Charles Allen. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org. Slash book club. Member of the DC Council representing Ward 6. Council member Alan Mayor Muriel Bowser and outgoing DC Police Chief Peter Newsham both oppose the Second Look Amendment Act, Newsham calling it a threat to public service. Ward 3 Council member Mary Shrey tried to add two amendments, one that would give substantial weight to the victims' voices in resentencing, another that would uh, propose that a judge consider the nature of the underlying offense when deciding whether to shorten a sentence. Both of those amendments failed. Why did they not gain any support? Except, I think, for Brandon Todd. Oh, well, the, under the law, both victims and survivors are put front and center in the decision-making by a court. And, of course, the, the underlying offense is thoroughly examined as a part of, of the review. What I think is more important, though, is that we've seen, even in, in the time between when we first uh, voted on this on December 1st to the second vote, we've actually had more, even more jurisdictions around the country are taking this type of criminal justice reform step because it's really rooted in in fairness and in public safety. Uh, Los Angeles County, for example, uh, the week after we passed our law, uh, said that they're going to be doing resentencing of everyone, not just uh, up to age through age 24, but every person after 15 years. And part of that's because what we really see in sentencing of young people is a a historic and massive racial disparity that has played out, uh, not just here in D.C., but across the country, where young black offenders get a much more extreme sentence uh, than anyone else. Uh, and so part of this is is part of the work of our racial reckoning and is part of our work of criminal justice reform, And but it's rooted in public safety, and it's rooted in making sure that individuals are able to come home and do so safely. And, and again, as I've 
illustrated with several examples, um, none have reoffended violently here in the district. And in fact, many of them are actively working to help improve public safety. And, and that's the outcome we want. And I think that's why we've also seen in a poll that was just released this week, 71% of D.C. residents support the Second Look Act because they understand it's, it's common sense criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, and they understand yeah. that it helps make us safer. Councilmember, council member, um, while the mayor and the police chief didn't like your legislation, Attorney uh, General Carl Racine has put out a very strong statement in support of what you've done. And you've just mentioned that some areas, that some jurisdictions are looking at, at something to look at all crimes. Would you, would, would you support at some point, I know this law is just now going to be going into effect, would you support somebody looking at, at sentences of 10 years, uh, not 15, but 10 years or, or any crimes? How would you, how would you, where would you like to get other than where this law is now? Well, What's the, the ultimate? Rec- yeah, the recommendation uh, that we've seen from, the, uh, from national organizations, from uh, the bar associations and other legal scholars is that 15 years is when we should be doing a sentencing review to take a look back and, and decide, is this person... Do they remain a threat to public safety or are they rehabilitated and can they come home? Uh, and that's what we've seen a couple of states and jurisdictions that are moving in that direction. I think ultimately that would be uh, the right place to go uh, nationally is that we look at that after 15 years. It's, it's part of what the Second Look Act nationally by Senator Booker uh, has included as well. So I think that that's the direction ultimately to go in. But I'm, I'm very proud of what we've gotten through. I think it's going to make a significant uh, improvement for our own system uh, that is rooted in justice and in public safety. Look, can, we ask that, can we ask first about the police chief before we move on to other subjects? The, the police chief has announced he's, he's leaving on his schedule as of February 1st to go to Prince William County. Uh, you're the chairman of the Judiciary Public Safety Committee. Uh, I know, are you being consulted at all about who the mayor is considering as an interim chief or a permanent chief? Well, I, you know, uh, wish Chief Newsham uh, the best in his new role, but I, I think it really is a, a, an opportunity now for us to, to help rethink the way in which policing and public safety intersect in our city. You know, we just held a hearing yesterday where we had uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of witnesses come and talk about what they'd like to see as well as learn from other jurisdictions around the country about how we can help solve problems um, in ways that aren't always law enforcement. There's going to be a yeah, need right, for, I, for I, law enforcement. Me, I support that. But, mm-hmm. okay, excuse me, my question was, though, is the mayor speaking with you about her plans to have an interim chief to see if that person would be acceptable to the council or the new chief? Or is it too early? We haven't had that conversation yet. Now, I want to respect the mayor has a, has a process that she's going to go through as she makes her appointment. And obviously, the council has a process that we have to review in any of those appointments. Um, you know, but I, I, I do think that both the mayor and, and all of us, I think, can see this, this is an opportunity uh, to make sure that uh, who is selected to ultimately lead the department uh, is somebody who's going to really take an approach that, that looks at how do we stop breakles, how do we stop cycles of violence, how do we really address public safety and gun violence in particular from a public health perspective to end these cycles of violence and really build a safer city. Let's stay with the MPD for a second. Here's Miranda in Washington, D.C. Miranda, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so first, I would just like to say, um, on Monday, we went down to Central Booking. To Who is we? I'm sorry? Who is we? 
We, um, a group of local activists, okay. uh, who have been heavily involved in the Black Lives Matter movement as well as mutual aid efforts throughout the city. Okay. Um, so, th- as you know, there were several people arrested over the weekend, uh, some of which uh, were arrested unlawfully. And so one of the things that uh, we do uh, to support the community is to show up at Central Booking and provide love, support, and food to our friends as they are released. Uh, on Monday, I had just finished hugging a good friend of mine after they uh, came out of jail. And the next thing I know, police are escalating things. I had officers groping my breasts, shoving me to the ground, and then ripping a protective umbrella out of my hands before bear macing me in the throat. Okay, we don't have a lot of time. What would you like the council member to do? What I would like to know, what I would like to know is how does... Um, how does the council plan to hold MPD accountable for this type of chemical weapons attack? Uh, they're violating not only the pending policing and justice reform act, okay. but they are also refusing to follow their own standard operating procedures when it comes to handling Council, First Amendment. Council member Allen. Yeah. Thank you, Miranda. Um, you know, we spoke to this issue a couple of days ago uh, in the council session because it, it is concerning and, and really deeply disturbing. Um, and I think it really speaks to a larger issue as well, which is what is our expectation and, and what should we see when it comes to the ways in which police respond to protest? Um, we have seen throughout the summer escalations like you're describing uh, and in other areas that, that I don't think are, are consistent with what we want to see hap- happen. And then we also see white supremacists run through our city, uh, vandalizing and, and I think committing hate crimes uh, against some of our black churches in the city. And uh, it, I can understand, as I'm hearing from a lot of folks, that they believe they are perceiving and feeling and experiencing an uneven uh, enforcement. And that's, that is deeply troubling, I know, not, to my, not just to myself, but uh, to several of my colleagues that, that have spoken to this. And this is what we also have to get to when we think about the, the future of, of MPD leadership is how we make sure we have the type of leadership that puts the, the actions and decisions in place um, that safeguards our residents uh, and, and does so with an even hand, no matter what they may or may not be protesting. Uh, and that's, that's concerning. I know this, this specific episode is, is under investigation, and I know we'll be following that closely. Uh, but I have heard from uh, not just Miranda, uh, but from others that are deeply concerned with this uh, and what took place. And let me ask ask a political question about this. Every two years, the council chairman changes committee assignments, uh, recommends changes. You've been the Judiciary Committee chairman. In the next day or so, the chairman Mendelson will put out his new proposals for committee chairmanships. Have you been told or do you expect to remain the chairman of the Public Safety Judiciary Committee? Well, we'll find out, I believe, on Tuesday (laughs) afternoon, I think, is when the chairman's going to be releasing his his recommendations for the next council period. And politically, you're up for re-election in 2022, which means you'll be starting next year. Are you going to run for re-election in Ward 6? There's some rumors you might want to run for council chairman yourself. You have less than one minute left in this segment. That well, didn't take I, long to answer this. Well, Tom, Tom loves <laughs> it to try to take the bait on this one. Um, you know, I, I think I've answered this one before, Tom, that I, I have what I think is the best job in the world representing Ward 6, and it's, a, it's an honor and privilege yep. to get to do that. And um, it's something that I, I love doing and, and would want to continue doing. 
Well, we're going to take a short break. Council Member Allen will stick around for a few minutes after the break. And after that, we'll be talking with Montgomery County Council Member Will Jawando. I'm Kojo Namdin. Welcome back. D.C. Councilmember representing Ward 6, Charles Allen, will be with us for a few more minutes. Councilmember Allen, the D.C. Council approved a bill to create a civilian review board for transit police. A Washington Post report found Metro Transit Police held weekly contests for arrests and citations back in 2018. Um, what will this oversight board do? Who will be on it? And for it to be established, our neighbors in Maryland and Virginia have to pass identical legislation. What are, you hopes, what are your hopes for this? Yeah, I certainly hope we can get all of our jurisdictions on board for this. And I, I want to give credit to Councilman Robert White, who's worked really closely on this as well. Um, you know, this we, we've heard stories, and, and Mr. White and I both held a, a joint hearing where we heard from specifically uh, young people as well, who have, have had really negative experiences with our Metro Police Department. And as we think about the larger issue around police accountability and transparency, civilian oversight and review boards are, are a major part of having trust and faith that uh, if a negative interaction takes place, if that trust is broken, there's a, there's a consequence and there's an ability to provide that oversight. And our Metro Transit Police simply doesn't have that. It's, it's multiple jurisdictions um, and, and really no cohesiveness that runs through that other than some internal processes at WMATA. So this would create a civilian review board uh, that works in all of our jurisdictions and oversees our Metro Transit Police I think it can go a long way to helping rebuild trust, rebuild faith uh, in the, the policing that takes place. Uh, you know, I, if you remember our conversation from a couple of years ago when we were working on um, the decriminalization efforts for fare evasion, you know, we were seeing just pretty significant abuses uh, of, our, of our riders uh, by Metro Transit Police. And so I, I think this is one of the ways in which we can really make some uh, improvements for our riders as well as work on that trust and faith that has to be part and parcel with police accountability and transparency. Tom Sherwood. Uh, this week, Superior Court Judge Anthony Epstein ruled the council overstepped its authority when it prohibited even the filing of eviction notices by landlords. I understand the reason for this is to protect people who are, being, who are facing evictions and being thrown out of their homes and apartments. Do you anticipate the council will have to pass some new legislation to address the issue? And what, if any, is the practical effect of the, of the ruling? The, the practical effect, uh, as, as best I understand it, is that uh, no one can still be evicted, uh, but that the filing of those paperwork can, can proceed uh, from an eviction standpoint. But I think it's important for tenants to know that evictions can still not take place. They're not allowed to take place. We, we will probably have to come back with some legislation early in the new year uh, to help make sure that we're addressing this. But let's just be very clear about what the, the, the risk is here. We are in an economic calamity as a part of this pandemic, and we have people whose homes, the roof over their head, is being threatened. And we will be facing an evictions cliff and crisis if we do not create the type of protections that our tenants need, that our renters need to keep them in their home. So many have lost their jobs. They have struggled with COVID or they've lost family members to COVID. Um, there's a world of hurt out there. There's a lot of people in pain. And we need to take the steps necessary to help keep people in their homes, uh, help keep them healthy. And, and preventing evictions is one of the ways we've got to do that. 
And finally, so you might be able to leave on a positive note. Here's Alan in Washington, D.C. Alan, your turn. Uh, hi, Councilman, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I just wanted to, it, the theme of the show was uh, accomplishments at Council over the last year. And there's one bill that Councilman Allen championed uh, that I just wanted to note, and it's the um, Transportation Benefits Equity Act Amendment of 2020. And uh, we are the first city in the country that has told work uh, employers that if you're going to help your employees get to work, which you should, and you're going to support uh, parking and pay for their parking, you have to give them an equivalent benefit if they don't drive and park at work. And in this age when we're concerned about climate change and equity and Vision Zero, uh, this is a, a first uh, of any city in the country, and it wouldn't have occurred if it not for Councilman Allen's leadership. So I just want to thank you for that. Thank See you so come. much, Allen. I appreciate that. Well, we allow you is to the leave. Law in effect? Uh, the, the law is going in effect. It was passed this year. Well, we allow you to leave with a pat on the back, a rare occurrence on this broadcast. <laughs> an outrage. Charles, an outrage. And geez, Charles Allen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both so much. And have a great holiday. Joining us now is Will Chawando. He is an at-large member of the Montgomery County Council. Council Member Chawando, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Happy holidays, everybody. I'd like to know how you feel about this, but I'll allow Tom Sherwood to talk about it first, and that is um, Roy McGrath, the Governor Hogan's former chief of staff, according to the report in the Washington Post by Steve Thompson, repeatedly declined to answer questions from Maryland lawmakers about that hefty severance payment he received when he left as director of a quasi-published uh, quasi-public agency, the Maryland Environmental Service, to become the governor's top aide. He is at least the second person who has invoked those uh, rights um, before these lawmakers. What's going on, Tom? Well, you know, Roy was going to become the chief, what well, did become the chief of staff to the governor, probably the second, the most important position in the state was behind the governor himself. And it turns out he just, he just got this lush payout of two, over $200,000, and then he submitted a, uh, from the Maryland Environmental Services Agency, and then he submitted a, a uh, expense account of something like $50,000 and had all these lavish trips around the, around the world. The governor has said he doesn't, he didn't have anything to do with approving of this, and we don't know exactly whether the governor knew about it, but he, the governor insists that he had nothing to do with all these uh, monies being paid out. The bad thing is McGrath, his lawyer, had said a few weeks ago that he would, he would appear and testify and answer questions. He did not. What do you think about this, Councilmember Jawanda? Well, it's a uh, betrayal of the public trust. I mean, look, it, the times we're in, the conversations we're having every day about people dying, getting infected for COVID, people trying to stay in their homes, uh, it really uh, hurts trust in government when you have this type of excess and payouts. And I hope that the governor will take responsibility. You know, it's on his watch. It's his chief of staff uh, and take appropriate action. Uh, and, and at a minimum, you know, you need to answer questions of those who are duly elected to hold uh, the government accountable and to do oversight. So uh, I'm, it's disappointing. I had read an article about it and I'm hoping that he takes uh, immediate action. 
Rwanda, the Montgomery County Council approved more COVID-19 restrictions, including suspending indoor dining, something we discussed briefly earlier in the show because D.C. is about to do the same thing come Wednesday. The Restaurant Association of Maryland and a group of restaurants are suing the county. What is your response to this lawsuit, and will there be help for restaurants that will take a financial hit from the new regulations? Well, I'm not going to comment on pending litigation. Uh, I will say that we did implement the indoor uh, dining restriction, uh, which we hope will be temporary, uh, as a health measure on Tuesday. Um, and look, uh, no one takes lightly the steps to shut down businesses, uh, at least indoor bid dining. They're still available for carry out and drive up and and, the, and delivery. Um, but we do need more money for our restaurants and businesses. But we had to do it for public health measures. I'm gonna. Yesterday alone, we had 14 people die in Montgomery County. Uh, we've had over. Uh, 73 people die this week. And to give you context, in the month of July, when we were coming out of going into phase two, the whole month we had 40 some odd people die. Uh, so in one week we've had 73. And so we are, our hospital capacity is almost at 80% as far as our beds. So we've had days of 500 cases and plus and more. So we had to take these actions. And when our contact tracing shows that a large part of the increase is due to indoor dining, especially as it's gotten colder and those spaces are more compact. So this is a public health measure. Uh, I think it was a difficult decision. Uh, we've given out at the county level over $255 million uh, in relief, including almost $50 million to businesses directly. Uh, the state has given out some money. I'm glad to see the governor uh, Hogan announce some additional funds. I've been calling on that for weeks. We don't need to hold any of that money back. And obviously we need the federal government to step up. Uh, but these are public health measures that are intended to save people's lives in the midst of a really, really difficult time of this crisis. Well, Montgomery County Public Schools remain close to in-person learning. You've been pressing health officials to prioritize getting kids back in schools. A lot of people would say that sounds a little irresponsible. You say it can be done with tighter restrictions in other areas. How would that work? Well, the steps we're taking, and, and part of the problem is, is we're not an al- we're not an uh, island here. You know, I was glad to listen to Councilmember Allen, who I think is doing great work in D.C. Um, we need regional cooperation, but we need statewide cooperation. And I've and I've also called for the governor uh, during this holiday season, when with a vaccine on the horizon, not even on the horizon, being distributed, uh, and we're going through that process to do a temporary stay-at-home order. Uh, we're seeing a bump from Thanksgiving. Uh, let's do that now give the money to businesses, stay home for four to six weeks, try to get a handle on this, and that way we can open our schools sooner because the mental health issues uh, for our kids, the young kids in particular, kids with differing abilities, uh, our high school seniors, go down the list. Uh, they're reaching to a breaking point, and we need to shut everything else down so that we can open up schools, and that needs to be our top priority. And there's places in the country and the world that have done that. I think this half measure that we've done here in the state, uh, unfortunately, We've tried to do our best in Montgomery County, but I think if we would have taken more drastic actions as we saw this second wave, we could get kids back in sooner. So I'm hoping that's what we can do now. Tom Sherwood. Mr. Council, Mr. Council Member, I think you tweeted on a personal level that you and your family would be staying home through the Christmas holidays. Uh, there has just been concern, you mentioned Thanksgiving, that there is a, just a refusal to face reality that people need to stay home across the country. The president-elect, Joe Biden, has said when he takes office, he'll ask the country to for 100 days to wear masks. 
we, politically, we cannot even get people to wear masks, much less uh, stay home and, and not congregate in other places. And the, here in the District of Columbia, the Archdiocese uh, sued the city to force the mayor to allow more people to attend uh, church worship services. It just seems like people just can't quite grasp how horrible this, uh, this virus pandemic is, even though thousands of people are dying every day. No, it, and it's really unfortunate. I mean, obviously, it starts from the top with the inconsistent and irresponsible messaging from President Trump over the course of this pandemic. We're starting to see that change from the president-elect. Um, but uh, I think, again, going to our level, the regional uh, statewide co collaboration is important. Uh, we've tried to do that with our partners in Prince George's County and other parts of Maryland and D.C. and Virginia uh, to have at least close to the same restrictions. But uh, you're right. It's it's devastating. I mean, you know, one percent of our population uh, has died from covid in Montgomery County, uh, over a thousand people. And, uh, and and you think about that, uh, it's, you know, or, or point one point zero one percent rather. But it's a significant number and uh, many more have, have contracted it. So people have to take it seriously. Small gatherings, wear facial coverings and don't go over people's homes. Could, if we can move on, I want to ask you about the county itself. During this, uh, sure. this time, this difficult time, there's been a historic change in the way that Montgomery County is going to approach development throughout the county. You yourself have a bill, I don't know exactly what the status of it is, that would allow duplexes, triplexes in single-family neighborhoods around a metro station, a mile within the metro station. Uh, is single-family zoning something that may disappear in the county? No, not at all. Um, you know, the vast majority of Montgomery County is, is zoned for single family, including where I live. Uh, this is about uh, allowing more housing to be built for more people at different price points. Um, when you, and this is all transit oriented. With a, within a mile of metro stations uh, in the county, you'd be able to build certain duplexes, triplexes, quads, uh, small apartment buildings within the form and structure of current single family homes. It couldn't be taller. 35 feet than the single family home. The setbacks would need to be the same. So these would be smaller, uh, but very comparable in their outward appearance. And this allows for uh, more price points. You take a single family home that's a million dollars, you put it into four quads, you can get not only more people near transit to access jobs and you take cars off the road, you also provide more housing. And we need more housing in our region and we need them for more people at different levels. So that's why I think uh, it's being overblown. This is a targeted proposal along with my uh, rent, uh, anti-rent gouging bill, which is important. As I was well. about to say your other housing bill aims to prevent price gouging for rentals there, Metro. What would this bill exactly do? And is it a kind of rent control? Well, you, you know, people, I, I, the labels, you can call it what you want. It's an anti-rent gouging bill. Uh, rents will still be increased. Uh, they will be capped uh, at a voluntary rent guideline, which is done, calculated every year. Uh, by our Department of Housing related to inflation. This year it's 2.6%. Um, and what it will do is give consistency and it will protect folks from displacement and gentrification that you see everywhere in our region. Uh, we have several projects going on. Obviously Metro is already here, but you have the Purple Line, Bus Rapid Transit. Uh, and this would protect folks within a mile of those public infrastructure projects that the taxpayers paid for at great expense, where land values have gone up, make sure folks don't get displaced. And so this the reason we call this more housing for more people is that it's about the supply increasing more supply and more home ownership opportunities at different price points but it's also about protecting those who are in these communities now 
and making sure that they don't get forced out. Well, speaking of rentals, that's what Jim in Rockville, Maryland, wants to talk about. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the topic of housing. Uh, a couple things. <clears throat> um, I'm a small landlord, had about four, four uh, rental properties and townhomes to condos. <clears throat> and one thing that, you know, frankly, really disgusts people like me is when all this talk about rent forgiveness and rent help or, you know, that, and our, our foreclosure and, and eviction protection. Um, <clears throat> for many of us, that's our income. That's our retirement. And we're small. We're, we're not multimillionaire, evil, money-grubbing landlords who are trying to take advantage of the poor and the weak. Imagine, if you will, if I, I assume you, know, you all work for public entities or NPR or whatever. You probably have a 401k or some equal state and local uh, or state and local retirement benefit. Imagine, if you will, if a, if, if a county or a state passed a law that said you have to transfer some of your retirement money to this person over there because of COVID. <clears throat> you know, where is the justice from from that? I mean, it's, yeah, it sounds politically good well, because people hate landlords. Yeah. Let me, one more thing. Your oh. proposal about the anti-rent gouging is <laughs> absolutely rent control. I mean, you can't with a straight face say that that's not rent control. And rent control has never worked. You look at the disaster oh. that it caused in all the Jim, Jim very briefly, Jim, what is, the sit- what is the financial situation you find yourself in right now as a small landlord? I, I, I have given, I have voluntarily given two of my tenants about two or three months of free rent. I didn't need the government to tell me to do that. I did it because they were good tenants. And I didn't want to lose them. However, the fact that we may be forced to basically take money out of our pocket, and I'm not—we're not rich. We're, we're not okay. rich by any stretch. In fact, I probably make less than the councilman makes. Okay. And and to to, to focus to single out one group of people that have to okay. basically subsidize to make this. sacrifices. Allow me to have the council member respond, sure. Councilmember Joanda. Well, I appreciate the question, and 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 thank you for calling in. You know, look, this is not about an either or proposition. We've given out uh, over twenty two million dollars in rental assistance uh, that's encumbered right now and is making its way to landlords. And the money doesn't go to the tenant. It goes directly to the landlord four to six thousand dollar payments to help pay uh, back rent. And so that is a support. Uh, We've also capped rent increases during the time a bill I introduced at the two point six percent per year realizing that people are struggling right now, like uh, the gentleman uh, acknowledged. And so this is not taking anything from anybody. This is saying uh, we want reasonable uh, stability for renters, uh, particularly near transit where the prices are going up, um, and that we also want to have supports for the landlords and the property owners, and we've done both. And and just uh, the last thing I'd say is we've looked at over the last 20 years properties that were uh, built. The most properties, the vast majority, stay within the rent guidelines, which are normally between one and 4% on their yearly increases. So this is not, this is for the extreme cases, which do happen where you see five, 10, 20, 30% in some cases, and people can't afford that. So this is an anti-rent gouging bill. It'll still allow increases from year to year. Tom Sherwood. 
clearly the virus is the biggest story of the year in the nation and in our region. But police reform is right up there also because of the George Floyd incident last May and all the changes. If you could just very quickly, what has Montgomery County done in reaction to the calls for police reform uh, in the wake of the police, all the cases we've heard about since George Floyd? The biggest well, we've done thing quite a done. bit. Yeah, sure. We've done quite a bit. Uh, I uh, authored a use of force bill along with my colleagues, council members, uh, Rice, Navarro, and Albernaz, and was supported by the whole council, uh, which is really a landmark bill that requires uh, that deadly force only be used when absolutely necessary, uh, not raising the standard from reasonableness, and requiring that de-escalation techniques be exhausted. It also bans chokeholds, knees to the neck, requires officers to intervene, when they see an officer committing a crime. Um, and so these are very important things that we saw and witnessed in the horrible murder of George Floyd and many of other cases that have happened before. But that's just the start. Uh, we, got, right. we have to do much more. We need to right-size the role of police and change their form and function and get them involved in things, only violent crime, not in uh, policing people's daily activities. And we're making some efforts on, on that front as well. I can talk more about just, that. Another big issue is the council, the voters of Montgomery County changed the way the council, county council will be made up, adding two more additional ward seats. There'll be like seven ward seats and, and four at large. When will that change go into effect and how would we pay attention how those, those districts are going to be created? Is that going to be done all next year for 2022? Sure. It'll, yes, it will be completed. We just appointed are in the process of appointing members to a redistricting commission. Uh, they will make a recommendation to us uh, by November next year of what the new districts should look like, the seven districts, and we're retaining the four at large. Obviously, I'm one of those. And then that will be in effect for the 2022 election, and our primaries are in June of 2022. So that's going to happen over the next year. Uh, and it's, it's going to be an exciting time, and it's going to reduce the district size uh, from about 225,000 people per district to around 155,000, which will be much more manageable and give people more representation. Montgomery County officials now say the financial outlook for the county isn't as bad as it originally thought. Brianna Akinkuksuma reports for Bethesda Beat that the county officials estimated the tax loss of $192 million for this year, but that estimate has improved to a shortfall of $101 million. The updated tax revenue loss for fiscal year 2022 is now estimated at $163 million, better than the July estimate of $282 million. But you apparently are reported as saying that the county should be diligent in making sure that no critical services to residents are on the chopping block for savings. Are you still fearing that? Well, we have to. I think, look, uh, it, I'm glad it's not as bad as we thought. Uh, we have done a good job in the county. We have half a billion dollars around 500 million in reserves that has been saved over the last decade or so thanks to previous fiscal management. This is the definition of a rainy day. Before any services are cut, we should be spending down that money. And then at the same time, we need to be looking at comprehensive tax reform. This is the other point I made. There was a report out that through October, billionaires in this country have earned more than $679 billion added to their coffers. That translates down. And here we sit in Montgomery County, the wealthiest county in the wealthiest state with millionaires per capita and the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And we need to be talking about what we need to do to get our students back to school safely, make sure that they have the supports they need, make sure that we make the investments in critical services at a disaster level time. And I think all that needs to be considered as part 
of also cutting the fat and making sure we're running government efficiently. Okay. But I don't think draconian cuts are in order at this point. We're almost out of time, and it seems today that we're in the mood to end with pats on the back. So here's Tatiana, oh, no. in, Gaith- <laughs> here's Tatiana in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Tatiana, you only have about 30 seconds. I'll be quick. Hi, Will. I just wanted to say I met you one time at Full On, and I was so proud of how you're bringing empathy and knowledge back to politics. One thing when we met that you said that really stuck with me was I introduced you to my coworkers as my favorite local politician, and he said to me, I prefer civil servant, and I really appreciated that, and I do think you're doing a great job. I appreciate it, Katiana. Happy holidays to you and your family. Thank this you. is making Tom Sherwood and I very ill, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how we're going to overcome this. I don't know. I don't think we can. But Will Jawando is an at-large member of the Montgomery County Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and for giving me the same ending that you gave Charles. I appreciate it. <laughs> Happy holidays to you guys. Same to you. Today's Politics Hour was produced by Sidney Grant. And coming up Monday, Obama had Beau and Sonny, but Trump brought no pets to the White House, making the People's House petless for the first time in over a century. We'll talk about how President-elect Bison's dogs will change that. Plus, robots, rockets, aliens, and undersea adventures. These are just a few of the things Gregory Moan likes to write about. The best-selling children's book author is our next guest on Kojo for Kids. That all starts at noon on Monday. Until then, have a wonderful weekend. Big holiday plan. Sherwood? Uh, I'm going to stay safe and wash my hands. You two all stay safe and thank you for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. The Kojo Nandi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granite, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schulpstorff. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button. And thanks.